Yeah, ready? Okay. All right, well, uh, good morning. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And uh, thanks especially to uh, Joe Salerno for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Uh, what I have in mind to discuss this morning are a few topics that are uh, in and around uh, the broader field of entrepreneurship um, that I work in. And uh, just from the start, like full disclosure, I have to say, when I'm doing this, basically I'm going to be uh, discussing a few of you know uh, my own ongoing research agenda in entrepreneurship. Um, so just to be clear, this is a little uh, a little self-centered, um, but. Uh, Hopefully, some of the, the topics and questions um, that I'm going to discuss will interest you, maybe for the purposes of your own research, um, or even if you're just intrigued by ways that uh, some Austrian ideas can be applied outside of their uh, traditional boundaries. Right? Now, uh, I think uh, uh, Peter Klein likes to point out that uh, the term entrepreneurship is a much used and abused uh, word. Um, especially in sort of like the, the public press, the business press, and so on. There's this, been this, this huge proliferation of entrepreneurial terminology um, that we're subjected to. Basically, these days, everybody wants to call themselves an entrepreneur. And uh, no matter how uh, obscure their own particular brand of entrepreneurship is, so now you know, we have, there are people who are self-described uh, cultural entrepreneurs and spiritual entrepreneurs and ecopreneurs and basically everything except business entrepreneurs, right? Um, but even though entrepreneurship is much abused, um, uh, nevertheless, it still does happen in a sort of a, a meaningful way um, outside the boundaries of sort of traditional market entrepreneurship. Um, and I do think that there is something to be, uh, to be said um, for, uh, for studying some of these less traditional um, forms of entrepreneurial behavior or maybe entrepreneurial-like behavior. Um, that's a sort of question that I'll, I'll touch on as well. Okay? Um, and so basically that's what I'm going to do this morning, um, just to provide a, a survey of a few different types of, uh, uh, of entrepreneurship in and around the market uh, that I and some others in Austrian economics have, have been, uh, been studying and that I find uh, particularly uh, intriguing. So um, I want to start off by uh, just before giving you sort of the broad strokes of this topic and how it fits with some um, traditional work with, with uh, Austrian work on entrepreneurship within the market. Um, and the place I want to start is a, a paper that was published by uh, William Baumol in 1990 called Entrepreneurship, Productive, Unproductive, and Destructive. And uh, it's a very well-known paper. Um, if you haven't read it, uh, uh, I recommend it to you. It's a very easy read. Um, you might, uh, I think you'll find it interesting. Um, but in it, um, Baumol makes a, what I think is a pretty simple but incisive argument about how entrepreneurship manifests in society. And what it boils down to is uh, his argument uh, is that um, economists are too focused usually on looking at things like the quantity uh, of entrepreneurs in the economy, um, or sort of like the, the total quantities of, of entrepreneurs um, in the marketplace, or the total quantity uh, of entrepreneurial activity, um, especially as a ways to explain things like economic growth and development. And what Baumol argues is that what they should be focused on more is actually not the, uh, the amount, but the distribution of entrepreneurship throughout society. So according to him, there's always entrepreneurship happening somewhere in society. It's just that it's not always happening in the market. Uh, in other words, it's not always happening in a uh, sort of a socially productive context. Okay? So instead, you have uh, 
entrepreneurial talents that could be used in the marketplace to satisfy consumers that are instead used for these unproductive or destructive activities elsewhere in society. So these activities would include things like uh, rent seeking or maybe organized crime, uh, service in a government bureaucracy, uh, public policy positions, uh, things like that. Okay. Um, and uh, according to Baumol, um, this, this problem of the, the allocation, the distribution of entrepreneurial talent um, is all about uh, the relative payoffs that are available to, these, uh, to the different types of activity. Okay? Um, so simply put, you know, if being, uh, say, uh, a, a court advisor is, uh, is, is more attractive, more profitable than being a merchant in the marketplace, um, then there are going to be more court advisors right, than merchants. Okay? So it's a, a fairly simple idea, fairly simple setup. And the key to it is understanding that um, the payoffs um, are uh, depend on the prevailing institutional setup, right? So it's it's institutions and particular political institutions that uh, influence the payoffs, that set them, and that uh, thereby uh, influence the, the flow of entrepreneurial talent all throughout society, right? And so you know historically, when we look at uh, famous cases of um, economic growth or economic decline, we tend to find that in, you know, in the cases of growth, institutions um, tended to uh, very positively support uh, entrepreneurial activity in the marketplace, right? Rewards um, were, uh, that accrued to entrepreneurs were great, um, particularly through you know, institutions like strong property rights and you know, freedom of contract and exchange, uh, low taxation, um, things that make market entrepreneurship more productive. Um, and on the other side of things, when you look at uh, significant periods of, of slow growth or de economic decline, you tend to find that entrepreneurial talent um, is channeled away from the market by poor political institutions, right? So things like very high taxes on entrepreneurial profits and other things that would dis uh, discourage entrepreneurial type people uh, from getting into the market to begin with. Okay? So it's a, I think it's a, a straightforward, even a, a simplistic argument in a way, um, but it provides, I think, a useful lens that, that Austrians can use um, to think about um, different ways that entrepreneurship uh, manifests in society and why um, very talented people would flow um, to these, these different areas of society. Okay? Um, now, Baumol was not you know, an Austrian himself. He was a Schumpeterian. And so his view of entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurship is basically just a kind of innovation, right? It's just sort of innovative activity. Um, but even if you uh, reject that view, um, as uh, most Austrians do, um, I think you can still use Baumol's logic um, and just apply it using a more sort of Austrian uh, or, or Misesian framework for thinking about entrepreneurship, and especially the idea of, of entrepreneurship as uncertainty bearing, right? That uh, um, we associate with Mises and also with people like Frank Knight. Um, and once we do that, we see that uh, Baumol's point about institutions and how they influence entrepreneurship, that I think still holds. Um, we just see that what the problem is really about is that we have people in society who are especially good at dealing with uncertainty, right? Uh, they have exceptional judgment. Um, they're very good at uh, dealing with these kinds of economic problems. And like all other people, um, people with exceptionally good entrepreneurial judgment uh, will tend to go wherever the rewards uh, are, are greatest for them, right? Um, and by the way, when we talk about rewards uh, and, uh, and penalties and things like that, um, I don't just mean like purely monetary rewards, right? There's a, a large non-monetary element to this as well um, that comes with, uh, associated with things like uh, uh, social standing, fame, prestige, um, and various other characteristics um, that can come along with being a successful entrepreneur whether it's in the marketplace uh, or, or somewhere else. Okay? 
Um, so uh, what I want to do is explain a few of these different types um, uh, of entrepreneurship uh, that manifest uh, throughout society. Um, and just one uh, quick point that I want to make before I do that, though, um, I want to say something about Mises because I think for Mises, in, in the strictest terms, um, there really isn't entrepreneurship outside the market um, in the sense that entrepreneurship is, is inextricably tied to economic calculation. So once you step outside that sphere, um, there isn't really any entrepreneurship to speak of, um, just as there is no true entrepreneurship, say, in a, a socialist society. Okay. Um, but nevertheless, I think the points that I'm making are actually consistent with Mises. Um, it's just that uh, uh, I'm not looking exclusively at economic calculation, but also at a, a number of other fundamental elements that Mises identified with the, the entrepreneurial function. That is, the bearing of uncertainty, uh, the problem of uh, allocating capital goods, um, and, and using good judgment in doing those things, right? These sort of Misesian, Knightian themes. That's what I'm going to focus on. Um, and uh, as to calculation, a lot of the what I'm going to discuss uh, relates to the question of what these entrepreneurial behaviors would look like with only limited access or no access to economic calculation. So, so what might entrepreneurship look like in those contexts? Okay. Um, so we're going to go through uh, a few of these. Um, sort of starting close to the market and then moving away from it. Um, so the first case relates to uh, what's sometimes called social entrepreneurship. And if there's a term that's more abused than entrepreneurship, it's certainly social. Um, everything is social now, right? You know, from corporate social responsibility and you know all these other uh, uh, business policies and practices. Um, but but there is something that's uh, something sort of economically concrete that that is called social entrepreneurship, and that's what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, if you don't know, this is a form of business. Uh, it's really blown up in the past maybe 20 years or so. And so since about maybe 2005, there's been a growing academic literature that's tracking it as well. So lots of people are interested in these kinds of businesses and uh, the sort of the, the rhetoric of business and trade that surrounds them. Um, basically, what social enterprises do is they start with, they try to use some traditional business methods, right? Uh, a for-profit business venture. Um, to solve specific problems that are usually consigned to uh, the charitable sector, nonprofit sector, uh, government provision of public goods, um, those, uh, those areas. Okay? Um, so just as a sort of a simple example of this, um, in Manchester where I work, there, there's a very large homeless population, right? And there are a number of local social enterprises that try to use ordinary customer-serving businesses uh, with this specific goal of helping the local homeless people uh, to uh, employ them, to uh, give them certain you know, uh, uh, job skills that they can go out and use to seek more permanent employment and maybe you know, get more stability in their lives in general, things like that. Okay? So that's the sort of social goal. And as you can imagine, there are you know, uh, uh, many, many, many different ways to do this. There are lots of different social goals that you can have, but they generally relate to these broad uh, sort of public goods um, or, uh, or even sort of market failure areas um, that are uh, typically considered um, to be ignored by markets because of you know, uh, various uh, uh, problems um, that market entrepreneurship has. Okay? Um, but what makes the social enterprise unique is that it aspires to be a fully functioning business that survives based on its ability to satisfy consumers, right? So they are sort of Misesian entrepreneurs in that sense that they're very consumer focused, right? Um, they are designed to be independent of government, to be independent of charitable support, 
and to survive just, again, based on their ability uh, to do well in the marketplace, right? So the key difference for them is just what they do with the profits once they make them, right? And I'll sort of explain more of this as, as we go. Um, but to think about these firms, um, you can ask this sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of cosian question: Why do firms exist? Right? It's it's fair to ask why do so these social enterprises exist at all? Uh, why is a special kind of business uh, necessary? Why don't just regular businesses do this stuff instead? Um, so what's going on with this? Um, and I think that there are actually some nice, distinctly Austrian answers um, to these uh, to these kinds of questions. Um, a few ones that are worth considering. Uh, first, there's a problem that um, in these areas that social enterprises operate, there tends to be uh, some significant problems of uncertainty that don't usually exist uh, within the regular marketplace. And those uncertainties aren't necessarily outweighed by the promise of uh, enormous monetary profits, right? So in this sense, again, institutionally, uh, it's a lot less attractive um, for ordinary entrepreneurs to get into these spaces. And so they were, tend to require special kinds of people who are, have these special interests. Uh, um, so that's, uh, that's, that's one issue. Um, you know, social enterprises are going to tend to be oriented toward um, not just running a, a profitable business in the monetary sense, um, but also in generating lots of psychic profit for all kinds of people in and around the enterprise. So this sort of complicates um, the, the structure of their organizations a bit. Um, there's also a, an institutional question that I mentioned already. Um, lots of social enterprises in practice tend to operate um, in, uh, in spaces. Uh, by the way, I'm sorry, this is another word that I hate, space. Everybody uses it now, right? It's like the business space, you know, the, okay. Um, but a lot of social enterprises operate in areas that are very, very difficult for ordinary businesses to reach due to things like regulatory barriers, right? Um, so in, in uh, um, areas where uh, unemployment is high due to labor market regulations um, or where uh, educational standards are extremely poor due to a, you know, a failed uh, school system, um, these are where social enterprises tend to, to do business, where they tend to thrive. Um, but uh, there are also areas where um, just sort of uh, legally and economically ordinary businesses have a, a tough time getting into. Um, so that's another thing to think about. Um, but even beyond these, I think there's a, a deeper reason why social enterprises, we would expect that they would continue to exist even in, in um, uh, far less regulated societies um, than the ones that, that we tend to live in. Um, or in other words, there's an economic explanation about uh, the, so, the, the function, uh, the economic function of social entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, and that reason has to do with, uh, with economic calculation. So uh, social enterprises sort of exist on the boundary between calculation and non-calculation. Um, as you know, if you've read you know, Mises and Rothbard, um, entrepreneurs always, they need external prices um, in, order to, uh, in order to calculate, right? Um, in order to, to, for instance, solve problems like the, uh, the, the make or buy decision within the firm, okay? So a profit-seeking firm will, will always uh, try to ensure that there are external prices available um, for all the goods or services um, that it produces or, or that it relies on, right? Um, in order to avoid the problem um, of, uh, uh, of the impossibility of socialist calculation or the impossibility of calculation under one big firm. This is a problem that Rothbard talked about in Man, Economy, and State. Um, so profit-seeking firms are usually trying to um, uh, uh, 
maximize the scope of economic calculation to make sure um, external prices are available absolutely everywhere they can be. But social enterprises are a little bit different um, from this um, in at least two ways. So one difference is that social enterprises are very often trying to price uh, previously unpriced resources um, and resources that um, maybe have never had any price uh, at all in the market and that tend to be um, much more complicated in terms of pricing um, than ordinary goods and services are. And one example of this might be something like homeless labor, right? So if you own a sandwich shop and you know you want 25% of your employees uh, to be uh, homeless people so that you can you know help them improve their lives, um, there are a lot of additional uncertainties um, about pricing this kind of labor that you have to deal with that most ordinary entrepreneurs don't have to deal with um, when they're trying to, uh, to employ labor. Okay? And so from this, I, I would suggest that there is a valuable uh, social function that entre uh, social entrepreneurs can play here, um, which has to do with taking on this responsibility of pushing out the boundaries of economic calculation. That is, um, bearing the uncertainty that's associated with being the first person to sort of take a wild stab in the dark when trying to price all kinds of, uh, of goods and services, right, in the absence of external prices. So this is maybe one way to, to think about how social uh, enterprises work. Um, a second one, um, is sort of on the other side of things, is that usually uh, following a social mission actually involves um, holding some resources outside uh, the sphere of economic calculation. So instead of keeping them in, here you have a, a choice to make, um, basically a trade-off where you, um, a social enterprise can agree to uh, uh, to sort of let the economic calculation slide um, by acknowledging that doing so and thereby sort of completing whatever their social mission happens to be is more important to them than the profit they could earn by more accurately pricing those resources, right? Again, if you take this, this homeless example, right, these social enterprises know very well that trying to achieve their social missions are going to make it harder to stay profitable than it otherwise would be um, because employing the homeless will very likely result in a mismatch between uh, you know wages and you know discounted marginal productivity right it's a very it's, it's a much more difficult process than it normally is even in regular labor markets which are tough enough okay but social entrepreneurs can accept this cost um, and accept lower monetary profits um, because they deal in this uh, complicated combination of trying to earn monetary profits for the business and trying to earn psychic profits for all these other people who are involved in the organization. Okay. Um, one way that I, that I think about this is that uh, Rothbard in Man, Economy, and State talks about uh, islands of calculational chaos that exist in the economy where, uh, where external prices uh, don't exist, right? Or maybe where, uh, say, a socialist economy exists surrounded by uh, a number of uh, uh, free market economies. You can sort of think about social entrepreneurs as uh, dealing in and around these islands of calculational chaos. Uh, sometimes they're trying to shrink them by pricing new goods. Uh, sometimes they're actually sort of keeping them afloat um, on, the, on the hopes that, uh, that doing so will help them achieve whatever this, this broader um, social mission that they have. Uh, might be, right? Um, but basically this involves uh, a combination of, of using economic calculation and of uh, making gifts, uh, to, to use uh, Mises' term. And um, this is actually a nice quote, I think, from Mises uh, on this. I apologize for the block quote on the PowerPoint slide. Um, 
that's block quote with a small b, not the other kind. Um, <laughs> I never have the other kind. Uh, so um, Mises here is just talking about how um, in action um, people uh, are, are always engaged in um, uh, uh, making, uh, entrepreneurs are always engaged in a, sort of a combination um, of, of profit-seeking, um, but also giving gifts, right? So in this example of, uh, of the entrepreneur um, who hires a sort of incompetent person because he doesn't want him to feel bad, um, accepts a lower monetary profit for that, um, uh, but in exchange, um, sort of tries to uh, create some additional psychic profit and makes a gift sort of out of the, the value of the enterprise for doing that, okay? So I think this is uh, one way that you could think about uh, the way that, that social entrepreneurship happens. Um, so next up is uh, political entrepreneurship. Um, this term's been around for a long time, uh, a few decades at least, but for most of its life, it, it actually wasn't really connected with, uh, with entrepreneurship at all. Um, it's mostly been used as a, a euphemism for uh, rent-seeking, basically, or you know, some other concepts in, in the public choice literature. And uh, partly in response to this, there are some Austrians, people like uh, Randy Holcomb, who have um, tried to sort of combine the, the public choice aspects with a more traditional entrepreneurial uh, theory. Um, in a way to kind of like get the most mileage possible out of the term and avoid just um, creating a sort of a, a redundant term. And uh, what, what, uh, what Holcomb does in his work is he tries to use Israel Kersner's theory of entrepreneurship um, and sort of uh, graph that together um, onto, uh, onto public choice um, uh, to discover a sort of a uniquely entrepreneurial sense um, in which we could say, we could, which we could talk about political entrepreneurship, right? Um, so for him, political entrepreneurs would be people who are uh, alert to the opportunity to profit from uh, action in the political sphere, right? So again, people like um, uh, particularly astute uh, legislators or, or rent seekers who are on the lookout for the opportunity to influence policy in a way that, that will benefit them, okay? Um, and so I, I think that this kind of approach is a sort of a step in the right direction in the sense that it's, it's more about entrepreneurship and less just about creating an additional unnecessary uh, term. Um, but I do also think it runs into some of the same troubles uh, that uh, Kersner's regular theory of entrepreneurship runs into. Um, and I, I won't uh, get too much into that, um, but just to say, um, if this is a, a maybe a less useful approach, um, what would be a more productive way um, to, to kind of take this theory forward? What theory of entrepreneurship could we use? Um, and uh, for that, um, I just wanna say that um, if you're interested in this topic, uh, uh, Peter Klein has a, a paper where he uh, discusses um, some different ways that entrepreneurship, uh, political entrepreneurship might look like in light of several major competing economic theories of the entrepreneur. Um, so if you're interested in that, I, I recommend that, uh, that paper to you as a starting point. I think it's called uh, Toward a Theory of Public Entrepreneurship. Um, and so that, that's a good paper. Um, but of course, it is, it is just an introduction. Um, obviously, he hasn't thought about it as, as clearly or as deeply as I have. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I, <laughs> I was just, just glad you're here. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but it's, seriously, it's, it's a good paper. Um, uh, I highly rec recommend it to you. Um, but uh, one of the points that I, uh, Peter Klein is making there is that we can uh, use this sort of Misesian, Knightian view of entrepreneurship um, in the public sphere, in the political sphere as well. And so that's um, something that, that I've been interested in as well. 
Um, and if we, by doing that, we can find a sort of a distinct identity for political entrepreneurs, um, especially as a kind of decision maker within government, right? So if it makes sense if entrepreneurs are decision makers within the market, you know, if they're uh, bearing uncertainty, making judgments and so forth, um, what about the people who do that in government? Because government is also heavily involved in uh, allocating resources to all kinds of projects um, that it's interested in, um, whether they're you know, productive, unproductive, or, or destructive, um, mostly the latter two, of course. But uh, um, we can think about people working within government as a kind of entrepreneurs. Um, there's obviously a big caveat to this, uh, of course. But uh, if you look at... Uh, uh, public affairs, public policy, it does involve some of the same challenges that everybody faces, right? In the market or not in the market, right? Uh, there's scarcity, there's uncertainty, there's the need for judgment, right? These don't just disappear in the political realm. Um, in fact, if anything, there are much uh, more difficult problems there, okay? So we can think of political entrepreneurs as people um, within government who are making decisions um, about how uh, to deal with these problems. And in particular, um, Political entrepreneurs are going to be the, the ultimate decision makers. Okay. And uh, if we think about it in that way, it opens up, a whole, I think, a whole range of questions about how uh, we can apply these ideas, um, how we can take insights that we have about entrepreneurship in the market and see how they would work or not work uh, in the political realm. Um, and one of the, the big questions, I think, involves um, trying to apply these ideas in practice and trying to trace things like decision-making authority through very complex political organizations, right? Uh, because you, you, I mean, you can, uh, a very obvious question is, you know, who would political entrepreneurs be uh, by this definition? Who would they be, say, um, in, you know, in a country like the United States, right? Um, I don't think there are very obvious answers to these questions, um, especially, you know, in modern sort of complex democratic states where you have uh, which are not only very large, but have uh, both you know elected and unelected branches and things like that. Um, I think it's very very difficult to trace decision making authority within these uh, within these organizations, and especially to reduce them just to say uh, you know, down to say one person. Okay, so um, to ask this question in a more Misesian way, um, how can we figure out? Uh, what the difference is between um, political entrepreneurs and political managers, right? Uh, pe between people who just make everyday decisions in politics and the people who really control um, those decisions, um, the people who have the uh, uh, ultimate decision-making authority, even if they're not always exercising it, okay? So I, this is the kind of question that I find very interesting, um, worth exploring. Um, it tends to be addressed more by people like political scientists these days than it is by economists, but I do think that Austrians have something um, to offer here, right? Um, other interesting questions would be about, for instance, um, how political boundaries are drawn, right? Because of course the, the, the big difference um, with political entrepreneurship is that there is no economic calculation in the political realm, right? There are no market prices, right? So we know that in extreme cases, like in a socialist economy, um, there is no way to sort of set these boundaries, right? Um, in the way that their uh, firms in the market, um, and even markets themselves, um, uh, can set boundaries, right? Um, so, but that's an extreme case. What, for instance, uh, of the interventionist economy, right? So in, you know, a hampered market economy, such as uh, exists in the, the U.S. and in most countries around the world, um, what are the boundaries, of, what are political boundaries look like given that uh, there are a wide range of both uh, genuine market prices, distorted market prices, 
and uh, non-existent market prices that are prevented from emerging by you know uh, uh, regulation in its various forms. Okay, so in a in a more and more sort of complicated world like this. Um, can we learn anything about how political entrepreneurs might use or manipulate the price system in order to try to make these decisions, right? Um, again, I, I find this sort of uh, question um, to be very interesting. Okay, so there are variations on this theme as well. Um, and then the, the one that I want to focus on is uh, I'll call uh, military entrepreneurship. Um, so this is sort of entrepreneurship uh, and this decision-making process in the context of war making specifically. Um, and uh, there's a re there's some reasons why I think that this is worth breaking out as a distinct category um, and not just uh, sort of subsuming it under political entrepreneurship. Um, one reason is that historically, uh, military ventures have been one of the most common endeavors into which entrepreneurship has been, uh, entrepreneurial talent um, has been uh, diverted. There are lots of important periods in history when uh, political development uh, depended crucially on having uh, sort of a pool of very uh, talented entrepreneurial types available who were there to help sort of organize states and uh, and militaries and augment their power. Um, so so historically, this is uh, I think very important. Um, you may also know that um, mercenaries, uh, military adventurers. Uh, technological innovators in war making. Uh, these were actually among the, the first people to be called entrepreneurs when that uh, word first started to be uh, used in its, in its earliest forms before it became uh, narrowed down to like this, this market context in which we know it today. Um, so again, it's, it should be no surprise to see these types of, of people uh, popping up here as well. Um, and then just a, a final point about this is that um, why sort of a military entrepreneur would be distinct. Um, the army, uh, as it uh, emerged as sort of an institution in many European nations since about the 16th century, um, it's actually unique amongst uh, all the branches of the state, um, not just in its relationship to those other branches, um, but also uh, in terms of how it is perceived uh, by the people that it polices um, and by the people who are involved in it. Okay? Um, so for, that, for, for, for all these reasons, I, I think it's worth um, discussing this as a, a distinct type of entrepreneurship. Um, but again, there are all these elements um, that uh, look sort of similar to the kind of decision-making that we see in the market. Um, a lot of those similarities end up being superficial, um, as we discuss, especially once we start thinking about calculation. Um, but there are some, uh, uh, some seeming similarities, at least. Right? Um, in particular, um, just like in business, uh, somebody in military affairs needs to formulate strategy, right? Needs to deal with the problems of scarcity, needs to allocate scarce resources to different competing ends, right? Um, but how do they make these decisions, right? Uh, in the absence of economic calculation. Um, and once again, I think this is a very good way uh, to illustrate how uh, economic thinking differs from other types of analysis, right? Because Again, what looks to be uh, like very similar methods and types of decision making actually turn out to be very uh, quite different. Um, an example of this would be logistics, right? So many military writers um, would look to logistics for for answers to some of these economic problems, right? How do we keep things efficient? Um, how do we, you know, efficiently uh, uh, execute campaigns and so forth? Um, logistics has been very scientific for at least a couple of centuries now. Um, but uh, 
it's not the same as calculation, right? And it's not a substitute for it. Um, because even though logistics gives us very scientific details about exactly, you know, how many resources, uh, how many uh, uh, are required to move troops from point A to point B, exactly how much fuel you need and supplies and all these other things, um, these aren't actually the answers um, that you get um, from, uh, from economic calculation. They don't tell you anything about sort of the social value of the alternative uses of these things, right? And, and that's what the, the economic problem is all about. Um, Again, uh, you have problems like um, who makes uh, military decisions, right? Uh, who, who organizes military affairs? Well, superficially, uh, it's the leaders of the armed forces, right? Um, but at the same time, uh, to some extent, their decisions are uh, beholden to the states that field armies and, and that try to prosecute military campaigns. Um, you know, you have people like uh, uh, Karl von Clausewitz who talked about subordinating military strategy to political objectives, right? The military is simply a means to achieve um, some, uh, some political end, right? Uh, but nevertheless, there's still, you know, in, in, uh, a long history of conflict between states uh, and, their, and their militaries. Um, it's been around for quite some time, and I think it's one that social science uh, can usefully study. Um, and again, it comes back to this question of trying to trace uh, authority, ultimate decision-making through these very uh, complex organizations. Okay. Again, um, are, there, uh, are there genuinely military entrepreneurs or are there just political entrepreneurs and military managers, right? This is the sort of thing uh, to think about. Um, and of course, uh, uh, coming back uh, to Mises, um, how, do you, uh, how do you organize a military without economic calculation? I kind of touched on this already. Um, we're dealing, you know, we're in the area now of bureaucratic rules, right? As, as Mises described, uh, decision-making um, outside economic calculation. Um, but how, you know, uh, how do these kinds of rules, like how do they uh, appear, how do they evolve over time? Um, in specifically military organizations, right? Um, because militaries, again, are not the same as, as other branches of the state. Um, they can't be treated like uh, every other uh, kind, of, uh, kind of bureaucracy. Okay. Um, military entrepreneurs are, are, are always looking for methods um, to, to more rationally organize their efforts, um, but they have to find some kind of substitute for the price system. Uh, and so historically, similar to, to bureaucratic systems, Militaries tend to be organized uh, based on these very rigid hierarchies of command and control, right? You can contrast that um, to organization in the market, which is, is much more uh, flexible, much more open to change, because organizations, um, businesses, need to be able to respond very quickly to entrepreneurs changing up, you know, appraisals of, of future prices, right? Um, but this doesn't happen uh, in the military. Okay? And in fact, military methods of organization um, have basically been the same uh, they, they're basically the same now as they have been since like, the earliest recorded human history. Right? We can talk more about that if you like, too. Um, but uh, one um, uh, interesting aspect uh, of the military that you don't often see amongst other uh, forms of uh, public bureaucracy um, is the extensive use of rewards and punishments. Right? Um, so again, this is very ancient, and it's, and it's actually uh, kept up even in the modern era when um, uh, sort of uh, uh, mobilizing and organizing uh, armies is uh, uh, 
not only carried out through rewards and punishments, but also has important ideological elements too. This is something that's um, relatively recent in the past couple of centuries. For most of human history, it wasn't like this. Um, you had to motivate people to fight for you through rewards and punishments of some kind. Um, but in the last couple of centuries, especially with the uh, you know the modern democratic nation state, um, all of a sudden um, there's we have these important ideological elements as well. Uh, but despite all the the technological and ideological changes. Uh, the rewards and punishments have actually uh, stuck around um, in uh, in modern militaries, and I find this um, to be very interesting. Again, it's very different from what you see in a lot of ordinary uh, public bureaucracy, right? Um, you take the cliched example, right? Nobody ever gets punished for screwing up at the DMV, right? Um, certainly, nobody gets flogged or executed uh, as they do in the military, um, no matter how much we would like them to be. Uh, so, but it's it's intriguing to me that some of these uh, these institutions um, have uh, have stood uh, sort of the the test of time, if you will, um, and I suspect, um, and this is something that I'm working about in, in some of my current research, um, I suspect that the reason for this, whether people realize it or not, is that these hierarchies, the command and control, the rewards and punishments, they're a response to the um, specifically military problem of trying to find a guide for decision-making in the absence of economic calculation, right? Okay. Let's see how we do it. Okay. Um, and so last, uh, I want to say something about uh, institutional entrepreneurship, and this sort of gets us back uh, towards where we were um, at the beginning. Um, another literature that's grown quite a lot in the past 10 years or so and uh, what instit uh, institutional entrepreneurship scholars do is they take this insight that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, uh, Baumol's argument about how institutions influence entrepreneurs, and they sort of turn it on its head. And they say, uh, well, actually, um, this relationship is bidirectional. Um, it's not just that institutions influence entrepreneurs by making some areas of the economy more or less profitable for them. Entrepreneurs are also acting directly on institutions and trying to change them, okay? Um, sometimes even in response to like, unproductive or destructive entrepreneurship uh, that's going on in society, right? So entrepreneurs uh, can act on institutions um, in a lot of different ways. Um, I think it's uh, uh, one of the best schemas that I've seen for, for thinking about uh, entrepreneurs, uh, I'm sorry, uh, institutions, um, is one that's suggested by Oliver Williamson, where he, he presents institutions as a sort of hierarchy. Um, we're at the lowest levels of the institutional hierarchy. You have markets, you have research, uh, resource allocation um, in the market context, um, and then above that you have sort of uh, contracts and long-term commitments, and then above that you have the political realm, uh, legislation, regulation, uh, and then above that at the highest level, Level, sort of the most abstract level, you have institutions of uh, ideology and culture and things like that. Okay? And uh, entrepreneurs can act uh, at any of these uh, levels, uh, at any of these institutional levels, um, and how they do that can have some end up having some uh, pretty uh, profound effects. Um, on the way that the economy uh, and on the way that society in general develops. Right? Um, the two major ways that people have, have talked about institutional entrepreneurship um, are through uh, altering entrepreneurship and evasive entrepreneurship. Um, altering entrepreneurs are straightforward. They're just people who see a problem at, within some institution and act to change it, right? So uh, maybe entrepreneurs who are uh, uh, upset with uh, prevailing business regulations, um, so they get into the political sphere um, to try and change those, abolish them or reform them or something like that. Um, 
both of these types of entrepreneurship can happen in productive or unproductive or destructive ways, right? So likewise, you could have uh, entrepreneurs in the marketplace uh, who are dissatisfied um, with a lack of regulation, right? And who, you know, uh, attempt to uh, say, you know, say rent seek or, you know, obtain privileges for themselves at the expense of their competitors as often happens. Um, so that would be uh, an example of say, uh, uh, destructive uh, altering entrepreneurship, right? Um, and then second, and I, I think more interesting is actually the idea of evasive entrepreneurship, which is a new concept in the literature. And this is a, a more indirect uh, way of, of changing institutions. Um, by uh, actually just trying to avoid them altogether, to try and sort of escape their constraints. So examples of this would be companies like Uber, right? You know, in the, the ride-sharing revolution that's been going on for a few years. Uber um, tends to sort of slide through a lot of legal loopholes, right? The institutional environment, the regulatory environment, hasn't caught up to the technologies that make businesses like Uber possible, right? Um, the old legislation is based on ancient technology, right? Uh, current regulations about cab monopolies and things of that sort. Um, they're all based on the idea that the only way to get a cab is to sort of stand out on the street and say, can I get a cab, right? So they haven't caught up to the, the new technology. And as a result, uh, Uber and, and similar companies have been able to slide through legal loopholes, um, for the moment at least, right? But by doing that, they've actually had a very profound effect on uh, the way that customers use their services, on the way that people use these types of businesses in general. And indirectly, um, they're going to be uh, responsible for either, um, uh, uh, for some kind of change in the in, in uh, prevailing uh, uh, taxi regulation, right? It might be that their evasion uh, triggers more regulation, right? Maybe the regulations are just updated so that the old monopolies um, can be uh, can be maintained, something like that. Uh, but it might also be the case that uh, eventually the regulators just sort of give up because they realize if they realize that they can't control these companies, right? So again, indirectly, um, just by avoiding them, um, sometimes entrepreneurs can uh, sort of uh, very very cleverly uh, have an impact on these higher level institutions, right? Um, the interesting thing for me is that the further up you get in the institutional hierarchy, sort of the more abstract you get, and in particular, the more you move away from economic calculation, the more difficult it is to be an entrepreneur um, in, uh, in any of these areas, an institutional entrepreneur. Um, the thing is, whether you're altering or evading institutions, um, it's always an uncertain process, right? It's always costly. Um, if you're a market entrepreneur, if you want to try to be a political or an institutional entrepreneur, um, there's always going to be an opportunity cost. You're going to have to give up uh, something, right? So uh, what are the implications of this costly process of entrepreneurs trying to move to different areas of the economy in response to things like uh, overwhelming regulation or, or the desire to uh, uh, acquire privilege and things like that? Um, it's a very interesting area to get into. Um, and the higher, like the more sort of abstract you go with institutions, the more difficult it is to get, right? Because once you get up to areas like culture and ideology and these really sort of deep-seated values that people have, um, we're, not, we're no longer in the realm of economic calculation because there isn't, strictly speaking, a price for these things. Um, they tend to be uh, uh, deeply embedded in society and they tend to be very resistant to change. They usually only change uh, over long periods um, and not usually as a result of, of specific individuals who are trying to change them. Okay. Um, so it gets very, uh, very messy and complicated once you get up 
to these higher levels. Um, but again, I think there's a lot to be said for thinking about how uh, economic calculation plays into this story, right? Or, or the absence thereof. Um, a lot to be said about this, um, especially for people who are sort of interested in uh, what we might call the marketplace for ideas, right? People who are actually genuinely trying to inspire, you know, ideological change in society. Um, it's a very daunting, challenging task. Um, and one thing that uh, uh, one of my co-authors and I have argued in a paper um, is that it's uh, um, it's probably much more tricky um, even than being a successful entrepreneur in the marketplace, um, which is uh, which is difficult enough. Right. Um, so uh, that's uh, all that I had in mind to talk to you about. Um, here's some suggestions for uh, for further reading. As you see, it's uh, uh, very uh, McCaffrey centric. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'll find some way to forgive myself. Um, uh, I think we have a minute left, a minute or two left. So um, if you want to chat about it, or or we could just talk about it in my office hours as well. That's uh, that's fine too. Um, it's up to you. So if anybody has a question, I'd be more than happy to take it. Uh, thought occurred to me that those in institutional entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. those who evade and alter, uh, actually, there's got to be a positive correlation there because it has to be. But if you have a lot of invaders, you're going to tend to have regulators who want to catch up with them and create a, a larger, more uh, complex institution with more regulatory rules. And so they, they sort of feed off each other. Uh, more regulations, now the invaders become more creative and possibly more numerous. Is that that, that's exactly right. Um, and that's something that people have been talking about just in uh, some very recent uh, papers, actually, about the way that these different types of institutional entrepreneurship feed into each other. Because it's exactly as you said, right? Successfully evading a regulation, um, it might result in the regulators giving up, but it probably won't. Right. Um, and, and this is exactly what we see happening with companies like Uber, right? So they successfully evaded for years, and now uh, the regular, yeah, yeah. And so now the legislators are, are really up in arms. Um, but even that, I mean, there, there's so many sort of secondary and then like third, fourth, fifth order effects that can come out of this because now the increased regulation um, creates, you know, some uh, some powerful incentives for entrepreneurs to start businesses that get around those regulations, right? So maybe um, some people have talked about like these productive, unproductive entrepreneurship hybrids where out of these bad regulatory situa situations, entrepreneurs are inspired to come up with new technologies uh, that end up being quite helpful um, to help get, get people around it and thus increase consumer welfare. Um, and then those people in turn need to be regulated. So, you know, so it ends up being this massively complicated, messy process um, of, uh, of people moving back and forth through this entrepreneurial environment and then people like regulators responding to that and, and so forth. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's that writ large. Yeah. yeah. It strikes me though that, like, especially with like political entrepreneurship, so that's what I do with fellow political science scientists. Huh? There's often a disconnect, and this is one of the differences between economic entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs. Is there's risks. There are risks borne by the political entrepreneur, but they're not. They're disassociated from the specific thing. So they, the consequence of their entrepreneurial activity might have economically bad effects on somebody else, but be politically very good for them, like FDR being like the classic case or some others. So it's like a redistribution or a different sort of, like they don't, because there's a lack of residual payments and some other things mm -hmm. that people are focused on, 
the risks they bear are not directly tied to the consequence of their actions in economic or social senses too. They may they may prosper while others suffer in a way that's not. Yeah, to some extent that's true, and I think that's why there's been a big increase in these sort of uh, meta economic metaphorical literatures, right? So um, lots of uh, the great example that's relevant for entrepreneurship is the idea of capital, right? So first it was capital, and then it was human capital, and now there's social capital, and you know a million of these other sort of metaphors for thinking about this, and part of it is related to the. Uh, the issue that you're describing, which is that um, when people aren't, um, uh, this issue of uh, things like remuneration, right? When people aren't sort of earning monetary profit, well, how do we sort of estimate what they're doing if they're not actually allocating capital goods themselves? How can we talk about this process in an economic way? And so people use these metaphors, like they're just trying to build their social capital, like as a way to sort of describe this, right? However, I would say that um, to some extent, at least, um, and I, part of it depends on the kind of political organization you're talking about, but to some extent, I think there is actually uncertainty bearing um, in there politics. Is, there is um, it's, 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 I think it's a little more separated. But it's disassociated from some of the other effect, economic effects. It's like a it's in a whole different, not a whole different, but it's in a little different of a sphere. Maybe there's an event overlap, but it's it's not as tightly tied. The consequences aren't tight, as tightly tied. Right. Right. The thing is, it, the major point is that the absence of economic calculation means that, that there's no uh, sorting process in the market, right? So people can actually bear uh, the uncertainty of their actions in politics. It's just, but the, the major difference is that, um, you know, the existence of politics, right, of governmental institutions does not depend on their ability to successfully do that, right? They don't go away when people fail. However, within politics, I think it is the case that in, in, in some situations, people do bear the uncertainty of their actions and that they can directly come back on them, even if in general, we could say that it's much more indirect or separated, yeah.